Hello, this is Mona Tonchev, past president of NCSM, and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders, the Reset, Renew, Restore series. Join me and my co-host, John Sangiovanni, as we sit down and have conversations with emerging and established leaders about how we can reset for the upcoming school year. Listen as we talk to mathematics leaders who can help us think about resetting what has become status quo these past few years. We will learn about their inspiration, perceptions, insights, and perspective. Listeners, fellow mathematics leaders, if you feel like current math instructional practices or student learning seems stuck or stalled, it's time to hit reset. Hello, listeners. I am Mona Tonchev, and welcome to the NCSM podcast, Learning with Leaders. This series is about how we are going to reset, renew, and restore as we prepare for the coming school year. Yeah, that's right, Mona. This new series is a chance to think about, well, a brighter future. It's a chance to think about what has worked and what hasn't. It's a chance to think about the pressure to catch up, but without taking shortcuts. And today we're excited to talk with Catherine Ye and Janaki Nagarajan, helping leaders think about, well, going into next year, about hitting that reset button and about why we need to hit reset. So Catherine Ye is an assistant professor of mathematics education and founding co-director of the Ethnic Studies Program at Chapman University. Catherine's research examines the role the role race, class, gender, and language plays in the construction of abilities in mathematics classroom. It's funded by the National Science Foundation, the Mathematics Education Fund, and other agencies. Her scholarship is collaborative, building research partnerships with school districts and communities to attend to the strengths, needs, and goals of teachers, students, and the community served. Her work as an engaged scholar builds on 20 plus years as a dual language classroom teacher and educator visiting over 300 student homes while family and community members came into the classroom to co-teach math lessons. Catherine has over 50 publications and edited volumes and journals, such as the Journal of Urban Mathematics Education, Journal of the Learning Sciences and Teaching Children's Mathematics, and is a co-author of the books Reimagine, Reimagining the Mathematics Classroom, Catalyzing Change in Early Childhood and Elementary School Mathematics, and an upcoming book on elementary mathematics lessons that will explore and respond to social injustice. Kathy also recently won the 2022 Early Career Award from AMTE, which is the Association of Mathematics Teachers Educators. And Janaki Nagarajan is an early career elementary teacher in Seattle, Washington, one of my favorite towns and a former stomping ground for you, Mona. Janaki yep. uh, <laughs> loves learning about children's mathematical thinking and, and aspires to center her teaching around student voice and choice. She's a contributing writer to the Global Math Department newsletter and has shared things she's done in her classroom in a variety of blogs and publications and conferences. She tweets at Janaki underscore Alina and blogs at thinkingwithchildren.com. So let's go ahead and jump in, Mona. Where do you want to start? Yeah, just welcome both of you to our podcast. We're excited to learn with you today. So as we begin, just tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your story, your training, experiences, and passion for your work today. Catherine, do you want to begin? Sure. First all of right. all, thank you, Mona and John, for having me. And 
Um, I am so grateful that I get to share this space with Janaki. I can't begin to express how much I admire her and I've been following her and I'm just a deep fangirl of her work and what she does in the classroom and how she centers students and, and how she makes them thinking and their brilliance visible. So I consider her um, an educator that I admire and also a sister friend in, in different spaces as well. So thank you so much for this intentional pairing. Um, so for myself, when I think about who I am, um, I'm a mom, I'm a teacher for 25 years, a math education scholar, a community worker. I spend a lot of my time in the community and most importantly, a learner of children and communities. Um, when we think of our stories as teachers, I actually think of my story as, as a student first. So um, my first experience being a student in the US, I was five years old. I came from um, Taiwan, a little island that makes a lot of different mechanical pencils are often made there. So um, coming from Taiwan, it was about two weeks before the school year will end. And my teacher pulled my, my parents for a conference after school and said, your daughter should take kindergarten again because she doesn't speak English. And even though she can multiply and divide because it's what they've learned in, in Taiwan, she's still not at grade level and she should do it again. Um, my parents, because teachers know all, decided to retain me and have me do kindergarten twice. I think what's so interesting is in California, kindergarten is actually optional, but I got to do it twice. Um, so that has greatly centered my experience as a teacher and as a researcher and what I think about learning with children. Um, that sometimes we position things that are assets for our children, like being bilingual, like being bicultural, coming from diverse places in the world. And sometimes we position it as a deficit. Um, that has greatly shaped how I think about myself and how I try to honor my diverse languages and becoming a bilingual teacher and therefore making home visits. Um, so in much of my teaching and my research, I build from a place of community-based pedagogies. How do we think about mathematics in ways where we center the community first? Not do the math and find it within, and then like then add real life context, but start with real life context and then see how math is inherently a part of everything. So, um, so that's me and that's what I am blessed to get to do. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah, um, I'm also super excited to be here with Catherine because, um, yeah, I think she's one of the people who kind of right when I was getting my feet wet, becoming a teacher and kind of discovered um, this group of math educators. Um, you're one that I've come back to over and over again and just like grown in my admiration for. So I'm slightly nervous, but also very excited to share, share in this space. Um, but yeah, I think um, for me, I, I think about um, my own kind of upbringing, feeling a lot of kind of shame and confusion over my um, multiracial, multicultural identity. And it wasn't something that, you know, I felt ashamed of because of like my family or anything, but definitely in the very white school environment that I grew up in, um, feeling like I needed to hide um, who 
who I was or like I just remember wishing so hard that I could wake up one day and just have a different name and not be able to speak another language and not be able to um you know look the way I did and it it kind of there was that aspect that just shaped myself as a person I think for a very long time in which the layers I didn't really start unpacking until I was probably like 25 in my teaching program um and um in terms of my journey with why why kind of I'm interested in education that's something that um I have educators in my family and something that I think I was always drawn to was um kind of thinking about how school should be different <laughs> I remember being in like middle school um and just thinking like, why do they teach us about this? I don't wanna learn about this. I wanna learn about this. Why don't they teach us this way? Why don't textbooks look like this? Why aren't there more visuals everywhere? Why is everything so boring? Um, and I think that was kind of the primary drive for me to enter this world of education, which I very, you know, very long resisted <laughs> coming from a family with educators. Like, no, I don't wanna teach, but um, kind of through a series of, and a variety of experiences, especially experiencing people who were doing that work and who were genuinely, you know, going into schools and also wanting to change things and think about how things could be different and truly wanting to show up for students and with students and create a very different um, kind of environment. I was greatly kind of influenced to specifically think about math education while I was in my teaching program and had um some pretty amazing professors and classes um who really kind of made me think about specifically um math and student thinking in math so yeah that is fantastic and both of you i just i have to ask you both how did you meet or how did you learn about each other's work um how did you come together i think it was through the miseducation on Twitter, right? There was like, if you want to, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think that's what it was, though. I, I thought so too. I was trying to think about that exact same question. Um, so, Jonaki and I met actually outside of the math ed community. It's through a Twitter chat called Miseducation. And it's a space created in that it's a pun on its name. It's the Miseducation of Asian Americans. Ah. And it's this idea that. Um, um, and it was created by myself and um, Vanderbilt colleague Grace Chen. And we created it three years ago because we felt that there was an invisibility of the stories of Asian Americans. And then like we think about in math education, when we usually talk about Asian Americans, we almost always cluster it almost like, oh, they're, um, you know, they're performing like near white, right? So it's almost like we're often almost only named to say that there is no um, discrepancies in academic performance and it's it's just merit alone. So this sense of we're almost invisible or we're only visible at certain times. Um, Grace and I thought that it was really important that there was a space for us to center on Asian American perspectives, but to tell the histories and story, stories in a way where we're helping each other um, think about what it means to do justice-oriented work in education that we learn about our own stories, our, our stories of our past, but other, also each other's story so that we can come together as a community, that we know that we can't do anything alone, we have to come together. And it can't be like research folks 
or just classroom teachers, we need to all come together. And I remember that's how we met. And um, yeah, so that's why I call John Key as a sister friend, mm -hmm. because, you know, when you have friends that take on a space in your heart where you feel connected in that way, um, I don't call everybody a sister friend. Well, that's fantastic. That is. Um, we're going to shift over to ask some questions. I was just that's such a good good story. It is a great to hear. As yeah. yeah, as mentioned in the opening, you know, Mona and I are thinking about next year, about next year as an opportunity for for a reset. Um, you know, a root, a reboot, a reboot, <laughs> or a restart. Um, why do you think, why do either of you, or both of you for that matter, think that we as students, teachers, administrators, community need such a reboot? Um, and what are some things you think we might need to focus our reset efforts on? I'm going to invite Johnny to go first because I actually think she has the best pulse in what's needed because she's in the classroom. Agreed. Yeah, I was just thinking about how at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, like two years ago now, it was such a loud conversation about maybe, you know, when the initial kind of shock rode, rode down a little bit and people were starting to, to figure out, okay, what, what happens with school now? There was a lot of discourse within the educational community on like, maybe this is our chance to like finally do some things differently. Um, and then I remember the discourse at the beginning of this school year in 2021 being like, wait a minute, what happened? <laughs> um, and I just, I, I've talked so much with colleagues this year, kind of being like, what, what was this year? What is this year? Because it's, it feels like it should be a regular year. We're in our school buildings um, for the most part, teaching per usual for the most part. And yet, um, despite not really having a ton of experience pre-pandemic teaching, it still feels like there's there's not we're not quite there. Like something got lost along the way, or something became evident that was maybe being hidden more um, previously. But it definitely feels like you know in the classroom that there's just there's just a lot that everyone is carrying, and that because of the strain on everyone, it just piles up, like things get piled up on students, more things get asked of teachers, more things are getting asked of administrators, of coaches, of specialists, and that that kind of sucks out the ability for people to feel like connected to each other, for educators to feel like this is a collaborative community, for students to feel like they're, you know, being supported in all of the ways that they deserve to be. Um, and I think that I'm really like impressed and happy to be a part of a community that I feel like is doing what we can do and is doing the best we can with what we have. But yeah, I, I feel like I, I think something kind of shifted in my brain in like March. I'm like, oh, I'm not really thinking about the rest of this year anymore. That kind of feels set, but starting to think like, oh, next year, yeah, next year. Like it, it, it feels like this giant question mark. And I'm, I'm trying to, to imagine and dream what, what it could be and the ways in which it can be, we can kind of go back to that idea of like, wait, let's not just breeze past that whole idea of like, what about resetting school? Let's, 
let's see if maybe we we can take some breaths and and do that in some ways. And Jonathan, something you said there resonated with me was that this time last year, I felt like, oh, I can't wait to get the next year. It'll be back to normal. And the biggest surprise for all of us has been, this has been so far from normal, right? And we lost that opportunity to reset. And that's a really great point that you make there at the end. Um, Kathy, what were you going to add about that? Um, I completely agree with Janaki. Um, we, we can't keep going in the direction we're going. We just have to be honest. The amount of teachers we've lost, the amount of administrators we've lost, um, how much our students are hurting. We know that um, everyone is carrying a lot of grief, a lot of things that they're trying to make sense of that are not that us as teachers are not prepared to have conversations around. Um, so we can't continue in this way because it's not healthy. And I think at times you don't just openly acknowledge it. So I think of what John Keys um, described, I often talk about this idea of pedagogy of pausing. Um, the best teachers pause, you know, like we give that, that like pause moment, we just don't say anything, right? Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes we just need to pause everything and really think about what it means to reset with intentions. And that resetting with intentions is doing less and really thinking about what is the purpose of what we're doing so that it's different from what we've done before. Um, I was just in, in Holland and I saw a tulip factory because um, it's you know tulip season. So mm -hmm. I wanted to see how people grew tulips. And I thought I would go to this field filled with tulips and, and the system in which they, they, they run tulips was revolutionary. And they talked about how much that system of making tulips has changed in the last 20 years or just the last two years because of the pandemic. Then at that moment, after walking around this tulip factory, I, the first thing I said that came out of my mouth was, look at what, what they've done with the tulip industry, yet the field of education has not changed in a hundred years. Mm -hmm. yeah. When the goals and the purpose and the fact that we are still fighting through an endemic and there is, um, and Ukraine is under attack. We need to pause for a moment and think about what we're doing in schools and how are we really preparing children for the world that they're living in? Because there's a calculator that can do a thousand calculations a second, I think. And yet we spend so much time talking about memorizing those basic facts instead of thinking about how we develop those facts and the ways of thinking and reasoning help us help them live a fuller, more enjoyable life. How are we helping each other thrive instead of barely trying to carry on? Because too many of us are exhausted. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly with that. Um, just from working with teachers, I mean, I'm in a state today and they're tired and it's not even like tired tired it's just the drained the drained aspect of it and when you're thinking about student outcomes you know if the if the teachers and the teams are struggling with just sort of that survival mode is it really going to have that impact on students that we want to see happening every day so uh, wholeheartedly agree. I, I wrote down pedagogy of pause. I'm going to use that phrase. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, 
I, I do wanna talk about one thing you mentioned in the opening. Um, and actually John put it as a quote, what does it mean to do justice oriented work in education? Um, so NCSM, part of our mission and vision is this idea around equity and equitable um, teaching and learning of mathematics. And so one of our projects, I don't know if you guys are familiar, but we had the NCSM Great Task Book. I think they came out in 2013. And so one of our, the Equity and Access Initiative a couple years ago when we started it was to take some of the great tasks that we had and make them more culturally relevant. And through that process, we realized it's not that simple, right? That as math leaders, it's not just about having a good task every once in a while, it's understanding what does it mean to have culturally relevant leadership in mathematics education and understanding as a leader, what are culturally relevant practices? So my question for both of you is when I talk about culturally relevant practices, what does that mean to you? Because I know that that's been part of your work. So I wanted to hear from both of you of what does it mean to you? I always lean on Janaki because she does this every single day. So she <laughs> truly is um, the expert on the ground. Um, it's interesting. I just came from a professional development that we're doing as a school centered around this idea. And the um, person who was leading the, the workshop, um, his name is Dr. Adiyami Stenbridge. And he was talking about how in his view that culturally responsive practices in education is kind of thinking about teaching as an art rather than an algorithm. And I had to write that down because I was like, that, that struck a chord with me and kind of, it's interesting because as someone, you know, who's in, in the teaching environment every single day, and especially this year, it doesn't always feel like there's a lot of time to sit and reflect on what's happening, what you're doing, what students are sort of feeling and giving back and this, um, and how to categorize that. And so sometimes it does feel like these words like equity and culturally relevant education or responsive education exist in like this realm of theory and that, you know, your day-to-day -day work is just your day-to-day -day work. But as I was sort of listening to this, um, this presentation, I, I was, and looking around my classroom and kind of thinking about this idea of, of teaching being something that's this very like personal, personal thing. It's personal between the teacher and the students. It's personal between the students. It's personal from the students back to the teacher. It's like this community and this, you know, kind of interconnected relationship web that creates, um, you know, when, when, watered and when fostered creates kind of an environment in which students care and teachers care and hopefully then also the content that is being brought into that space reflects sort of that shared shared caring um, and I think that 
there is a lot of cognitive dissonance being a teacher feeling like like this is what i want to be doing i want to be engaging with my students in a way that they care about you know the stuff that we're learning and that i care about the stuff that we're learning and also here's the systems that are in place that you are tied to and tethered to and don't have a whole lot of you know or feel like you don't have a whole lot of room to maneuver within um but to me i guess i feel like when i'm trying to reflect on like okay what what does it mean on a day-to-day -day basis to be doing to be having a culturally responsive or relevant practice kind of like well what would be the opposite of that right like culturally irrelevant practice like where students don't care it doesn't mean anything to anyone <laughs> people feel very like what is this what are we learning about and honestly like when you i've asked that question a lot of times when looking at the curriculum books because you know the curriculum is what it is it's not a person in your classroom it's a book um and i think that you know responsive right that that idea that it's responsive it's a give and take it's like what are my students teaching me what am i giving back to them what is my responsibility to like be able to tell what's happening and to navigate that like you know dynamic environment on a daily basis um so yeah you know i mean i think that that it is about what you're teaching and it is about having like you were saying great tasks but that's kind of you you can if you can start there that's great and then figuring out how to make that work when you are you know you're an adult and then you're in a room of 20 to 30 young young people um and all of the the things that they're bringing in and the things that you're bringing in too because you're not separate you're part of that that environment thank you Want to add anything, Catherine? So building on Jana Keys, I think I love how she's articulating that basically everything we do matters um, and that everything we do connects to our identities. Um, and we often think of culturally responsive and relevant teaching as something only for folks of color um, when everybody has a cultural identity mm -hmm. um, and that culture is not just race and ethnicity, which we all have a, a racial identity, but it's also gender, it's place. Um, our classroom is its own cultural identity, language, disability. Um, my oldest um, is neurodiverse. It is not something to be fixed. It is part of her cultural identity. It's also our heritage and our ancestors. So when we make and create lessons relevant to um, the history of our community, the history of um, my my of my um, heritage's contributions to the country, that's all cultural relevance, right? So I think about why is cultural relevant practice so important? Because we're always engaging in culture, uh, because we're shaped by cultural perspectives. And the question is, when we make decisions, who is it relevant for, for whom? And in truth, it's usually relevant for us as a teacher um, because we're like, that's like our culture, right? Whatever it is, it is. Um, and so I think what's been really helpful for me 
is to decipher, like, what do I mean by culturally responsive teaching? And there's many frameworks. And I go by Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings. It's like these three principles. One, um, it's center on student learning, that we always build on students' intellectual growth and their moral development and their abilities to engage in problem-solving reasoning, not my, not my problem-solving. Two, it's supporting students to affirm and appreciate their cultural identities, uh, multiple social identities. And three, it's helping them develop this idea of called critical consciousness, their ability to identify, analyze, and solve problems. That math is a part of the world we live in. It's not the real world is added onto math. Math is a part of us and within our world. So then when I do that, I think about four components that tasks matter, but that's not it. We should actually start with our goals. Um, when we think about the goals that we engage in in our classroom, and even as with teacher leaders, when we're working with teacher leaders, what is the goal? If the goal is to help our students meet proficiency on state assessments, have we looked at the formation of the assessments and how it is grounded in racial roots? So is it really grounded in what's gonna really be culturally affirming for our, all students, right? Um, and, and if our goals is to meet these benchmark assessments that are completely written and verbal, um, is that an ableist assessment that actually disenfranchise students across different disability classifications? So starting with cultural relevance with goals, then with curriculum, with pedagogy and our assessments, are assessments culturally responsive? So I think about the importance when I'm working with teachers to unpack into those four components because those four components, goals, curriculum, pedagogy, assessments, drive everything we do. So from the part of the lesson planning itself. So I'd encourage our listeners to pause, go back in here, listen to the, those ideas a couple of yep. more times, um, because there's there's so many important nuggets there to, to take away. Um, one of my favorites is the very first one you said, uh, John Key, was that idea about teaching being an art, not an algorithm, but, but all the way through the end, Gathery, and thinking about the assessments we use and the bias within them and so much more. So a question I have for you two, um, is about culturally relevant practices in terms of how, how do culturally relevant practices intersect with social justice? I was thinking about what the purpose of education is or has been, is, and like you know, than what, what it is that we are, what it should be. Um, because obviously in the past and to a, quite a significant extent still in the present, um, it has been used to oppress, to conform, to marginalize, to strip identity away from people, you know, as we've both kind of explained in our own experiences of not in the way long ago past. And, you know, with which if you ask, many students currently still will feel that education is not something that um, it feels like it's it's not necessarily something that in like um, makes your identity more um, present or feels like it it's part of that it feels like you have school and you have to be like a certain person in school and then you know you, you are someone else when you are potentially able to express those identities. But um, it seems that 
for those of us. And I think, you know, even for people who aren't quite there yet in education, but hopefully not working, you know, against it, although there are some, um, that I would say, I feel like a purpose of education is for liberation. It's for liberation of, um, of all people of marginalized identities and that with that as like the goal and the idea it's like you know like Catherine you're, you're saying you know, start with that goal then then what um it's not about what you taught that day or that one thing that happened it's about all of the parts and all of the things that happen over time and that I think you know if you view teaching as a social justice profession and that the goal of it is liberation that I think you know that is kind of working backwards to get there then you must use what you know we would call culturally relevant or responsive teaching um, in what it in what it would truly mean to do that and not in sort of the like check check off a box i i changed the words in that problem to to make it sound like you were saying kathery like oh it has to just target the students of color but um that that truly it's it's deeper a lot deeper than you know than that I completely agree. And I would say that I think when we look at, particularly in math education, when we think about social justice mathematics, um, and you like Google that term, we often see it's like a lesson. You know, it's like a lesson that's supposed to be built around this idea of um, helping students look at the world and seeing that there's inequities in the world and that injustice exists. It's linked to this idea of developing a critical lens and then using math in some ways, right? Um, but I, I want to call out, if we do these discrete individual lessons, looking at the Flint water crisis, looking at gender inequities and wages, um, and we do those things in classrooms, yet students are trapped in different ability groups, and certain students are forced or limited to engage in, for example, third grade work when they're in fifth grade. Um, they're engaging in a social justice lesson but it's only social justice by curriculum, right? So then we're talking about inequities as if something that was discrete and separate from them, instead of thinking about what we're doing with children that's perpetuating injustice. So I think an important component that I think social justice work need to do that would better connect to culturally responsive teaching is when we go back to Gloria Lanson Billing's definition, um, social justice with thinking about math lessons for social justice is that critical consciousness tenant that she talks about. That's the third one. But we can't forget about her first two. The first is that children have agency and should be engaging in rich problem solving. So when we do social justice math, math lessons, who's deciding on the math lesson? Is it the teacher that decides what social injustice should be looked at? Or do children have a decision around what's injustice for them? and that it should be responsive, culturally responsive to who they are, um, not just their cultural ethnic identities, but their ways of thinking and problem solving and the ways in which they engage in mathematics and see and feel math in the world. So, so yeah. That's awesome. Thank, it is, and I really, 
when they're listeners again to double down on this idea what are we doing that perpetuates injustice especially as we look to a new year and think about what we can think of and do differently mona what else did you want to ask yeah so so first of all i wrote down the, the, the pause that i took was the goal of education is liberation i appreciated that Jonaki. Um, and i think that as we begin to plan for the upcoming school year we have to consider that element of empowering our our students to be part of it um, so as we close i'm going to ask you one last question um, and i think jonaki says as you envision or like dream if you were to dream kind of what next year would look like you know what's something that math leaders should consider like one or two things like that starting point and i realize we're all in different parts of our journey um but if you were to pick one or two ideas that we need to consider ensuring that there are culturally relevant practices occurring and that we're aware of of the the different cultures in our, our buildings and our systems what are some of those things that we need to make sure we consider for next year as we reset. I guess if I'm speaking to like other teachers, um, I and to myself that I feel like a recentering of assessment and systems is very much needed. Um, it has felt like that that system, that structure, like Catherine kind of mentioned, that tracking has kind of become amplified. Um, despite people kind of being that being one of the things that was sort of called for like this needs to be restructured, reimagined, maybe gotten rid of it completely and re dreamed of. So I would I would urge teachers to think about, um, you know, recentering your students in their ideas and their thinking in mathematics and kind of looking through how you kind of assess students how you talk about students there's so much like low high bubble i just <laughs> like stop <laughs> please stop stop with the um, <laughs> stop and and think about you know not just assessment as like the test you're giving but communication is how we assess each other when we communicate when we write when we speak when we you know have you know ways that we communicate with each other how are your students communicating with you about the mathematics that they know and understand and what opportunities are you giving them to to engage in that communication how are you communicating back to them um and i think that that keeping that at the center of and building a structure around that for your mathematics um rather than you know maybe starting with like the task or the um curriculum i think starting with that feeling of like yeah like okay if the goal is liberation what what are my students telling me mm -hmm. and what am i telling them back thank you i love how you Janaki, you you said you started with this idea of recentering assessments and systems so then i think about um i'm so grateful ncsm is focusing on culturally responsive leadership because I know that um, I'm not the dean of my university and you're not the principal of your school. So 
we're like our students, we're constrained by the systems we're a part of. Mm -hmm. um, I think of when we think about culturally responsive pedagogies or culturally responsive leadership and what we what I hope to see in a year is this idea that if we really want to move in culturally responsive ways, we need to think about who we're bringing to the table to make decisions. Who gets to decide what's culturally responsive, right? Um, I think of how often um, what we think is most impactful is lesson studies. Having a bunch of teachers come in and evaluate each other's teaching, which is really powerful, but it's still a bunch of teachers who actually are not the cultural identities of most of their students, deciding what's culturally responsive goals, curriculum, assessments, and pedagogy. Um, so one of the projects I'm a part of now is engaging in lesson studies with families, with students. So we bring them in at the very beginning to analyze lessons together and then redesign lessons in ways that we as a collective will determine what's responsive. Um, I feel like we are, we can no longer make small tweaks to a system which you beautifully articulated needs to be recentered. Talk about powerful, empowering, not just the teachers, but also the students and families, which is one of the leadership actions. It's, it's the um, imperative, that's the third imperative that you cannot just, we no longer can do this by ourselves, right? The education itself is a community and we need to consider it as such and empower all of the voices within the community. So thank you so much um, to both of you for sharing because you are part of this community as well. And we just, we value and appreciate your time today and your expertise and experience in sharing that with us today. That's right. Thank you both for your time, your insight. And I know I'm speaking for so many listeners that I need to go back and listen just a few more times. Um, so thank you for that. We wish you the best for the rest of your school years and um, good luck to start the next year. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you have been inspired by this bold mathematics leadership conversation and will tune into our podcast series each month. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and a review. You can learn more about NCSM Leadership in Mathematics Education and our upcoming professional learning events on the NCSM website at mathedleadership.org. You can also follow NCSM on Twitter at MathAdLeaders using the hashtag NCSMBold. Thanks again.